Now, your worksheet is just like all the other worksheets, but you'll notice it's a little bit shorter. Probably the introductory information is a little bit more than we've had, but uh, the outlines are a little bit shorter than what we've been used to, and there's a real practical reason for that. It's because the book of Nahum is shorter than the other books that we've studied, and I'll be honest with you, I'm a little excited to, to not be trying to make it through 14 chapters tonight, amen? We've only got three chapters in front of us this evening, so uh, there in the book of Nahum, chapter number one, you can go ahead and get turned there. Uh, the book of Nahum begins, the burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. Now, we're familiar with that name Nineveh. We know that that is the, one of the ancient capital cities of the Assyrian Empire. And you'll remember that it features prominently in the minor prophet Jonah. Jonah is being sent to preach uh, to Nineveh and to allow them an opportunity of repentance. And most of us remember how that story ends. We know that uh, said that the Ninevites do repent. Uh, God does turn his wrath from them. And yet here we are, just about a hundred years later, and Assyria is the same as they were many, many years before. Uh, we talked about last week when we studied Micah, uh, the Assyrian Empire was sort of at the forefront of the book of Micah too, and uh, we talked about how that revival rarely outlasts a generation. Uh, it's pretty rare, and the reason why is because the effect that revival has is experiential, it's not academic. We all know the academic truths. We all know what's right. We all know what to do. We all know that the Lord needs to be our everything in life. But when the Spirit of God grips our souls, and when the Word of God takes control of our lives, we experience revival. That's something that's personal that takes place, and it's experiential. Uh, well, there is a generation, sort of like the Bible says about uh, the children of Israel in the book of Judges, there was a generation that arose that knew not God in Nineveh. And uh, so the Assyrians went right back to the old ways. If you want to look at your introductory information there, it's a little bit longer, but it, it needs to be because we're going to deal with who Nineveh was, what Nineveh was, and the impact of the book of Nahum. It starts this way. For more than 200 years, the Assyrian city of Nineveh had been the capital and curse of Western Asia. She had set the style in fashion, art, and to some extent religion among the Semitic nations. The world's trade routes converged at Nineveh, so her streets were filled with a conglomerate of people. Under Ashurbanipal, the last great king of Assyria, travel and knowledge had increased until Nineveh was the acknowledged leader in this world's wisdom. Situated on the eastern bank of the Tigris, opposite the present-day city of Mosul, Nineveh was fortified by walls, towers, moats, and forts. Her walls were between seven and eight miles in circumference, and so thick that three chariots could have driven abreast on the top. Think about the magnitude of that wall. Uh, one commentator said that there were over 1,500 towers on the wall around Nineveh, each of them some 250 foot high. And just the sheer magnitude of this city would have been remarkable. People of the ancient world were as familiar with the size of Nineveh's walls and the height and strength of her towers as we are with the dimensions of Big Ben, the Eiffel Tower, or the White House. But Nineveh's inhabitants thought of her glories as Egypt's slaves must have thought of the pyramids they built, or as China's slaves must have thought of the Great Wall. Nineveh was a monument to tyranny. The troops who manned her walls had tramped through every capital in the Middle East and were hated and feared by other nations. 
Nineveh had dashed their little ones against the stones. Their kings had been dragged in chains to the great city and hung in cages about her gates. Their gods had been hauled away to line the temples of Nineveh's gods. Year after year, Nineveh had depleted the treasuries of other countries. Their people had been starved and taxed to swell her coffers. About 625 B.C., when word first leaked out that Nineveh's frontier fortresses had fallen to the Medes, a muted cheer went up. And in 612 B.C., when news came that Nineveh had fallen and Assyria was no more, there was a universal relief and unrestrained rejoicing. The book of Nahum is the inspired essence of the whole world's sentiment. When there was not a cloud on the Assyrian horizon, Nahum was given the assignment to preach the downfall of Nineveh. A century earlier, Jonah would gladly have given his life for the task. Nahum's message must have made him the most popular prophet of all time. We know little about Nahum except for his name, which means comforter. He was simply a voice crying in the wilderness that Assyria had made of the world. In Nahum 1.1, he he called himself the Elkishite, presumably a reference to his home. There are various conjectures as to where Nahum lived. Some scholars link the word Elkishite with a small village about 24 miles north of Mosul, where to this day visitors are shown what is said to be Nahum's tomb. If this village was indeed his home, he belonged to one of the ten tribes carried into captivity by Tiglath-Pileser III or Sargon II. Other scholars think that Nahum lived in El-Kazay, a village to the east of Ramah. I like this next explanation. To me, it makes the most sense. Still others think that the name Capernaum, village of Nahum, is an echo of Nahum's residing in the area. Another conjecture is that when Ezra Hayden repopulated Galilee and Samaria with a mixture of people from elsewhere in his domain, Nahum and many of his countrymen moved south to Judah. Still another thought is that Nahum lived in el in the territory of Simeon, about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. For generation after generation, Nineveh had cracked the whip over the world. But now the city was to face utter destruction. Annihilation of a city was something new. For normally cities survive when empires fall. For instance, the city of Babylon passed from the Babylonians to the Persians and then to the Greeks. But just as Nahum promised, Nineveh vanished into oblivion so completely that for centuries even the place where it had stood was forgotten. Now stop and think about that truth, that Nineveh literally vanished. A city of that magnitude, seven to eight miles in circumference, walls that are, that are so thick that three chariots could have rode side by side on the top. I mean, that would be like walls thick enough for for three cars to drive side by side, probably from the end of this table that's empty over to the end of this table where Miss Diane sits, maybe even further. These walls were so thick. 1,500 towers, each of them 250 feet high, that stood on the top of this wall. It was situated on the bank of the Tigris River, and uh, the river, and I think I'm saying this right, the river Khazar ran uh, under the city walls and through the city, and a canal connected those two uh, rivers. This city was, was absolutely gigantic in the day that it lived in. It would have been a wonder of the ancient world. And yet it wasn't until about 1842 that the remains of this city were even discovered by archaeologists. It was said that Alexander the Great marched over 
the remains and did not even know it. One commentator said the footsteps of his soldiers trampled upon an empire of old, and he was unaware of it. Now, you say, what does that mean to me? What does that mean to any of us in this day, in this church age in Knoxville, Tennessee? There is no greater testament to the wrath and power and judgment of God than the ancient city of Nineveh. The fact that a city that was so vast and so grand could be destroyed so completely by the will and wrath of God ought to teach us something about how powerful our God is. And so three messages basically are given uh, in the book of Nahum. And uh, they're pretty well divided, uh, you know, it's pretty, the consensus is pretty agreed on uh, how they are divided, and you see that in the outlines. Uh, in this case, the elaborated outline is not really any longer than the simple outline, but I sort of like the way the simple outline goes. And so chapter number one presents to us this truth, that God is jealous and Nineveh will fall. Chapter number two presents this truth, that God is judge and shows us how Nineveh will fall. And chapter 3 presents to us this truth that God is just and why Nineveh would fall. And so in chapter number 1, and I don't know how long we'll take tonight, probably not very long, uh, but we'll take it verse by verse. I want us to take a look at what the Lord says about Nineveh and really more what the Lord says about himself and about his character. Notice the first few verses. We'll begin at verse 2. The word of God says that God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth, the Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Now there's three words that are used in those verses that I think we need to say something about because we'll misunderstand something about the character of God if we don't understand it. Once you notice that the word jealousy is used, God is jealous. The word revenge is used, and God does repay. The Bible says vengeance belongs to him. And then the word anger is used in chapter number three. The Lord is slow to anger. Now that's not really a picture of God most people would like to hear. Uh, described. And yet the Bible tells us that God is all three of those things. But something we have to understand is that these character traits, as we know them, we know them as marred by sin fallen man. They're really but a shadow of the character traits that exist in an almighty God. And let's just stop and think about them for a minute. We use that term jealousy, and the Bible says that jealousy is cruel as the grave. But understand that when we speak of jealousy, there's two ways that you can understand jealousy. You can understand jealousy in the sense of possessiveness. And that's usually how we imagine jealousy. And uh, usually the picture we have, and in fact the picture in the Bible, is that of a, of a jealous man over his wife. And we think of that as a very ugly thing. Certainly it does manifest itself in ugliness many, many times. But something about God in that context. Why is the, the thought of jealousy so offensive to us? The reason is because we would propose this, nobody owns me, and nobody has the right to treat me like they own me. Well, now, wait a minute. You show me something that God doesn't own. 
I'll give you an example, and I've used this from the pulpit before. But if somebody broke into your house tonight, and they were carrying away one of those flat screen TVs, if you've got one, and they were walking out of your house, you'd get real jealous in a hurry. And nobody would blame you. In fact, you'd probably say things like this, put that down, that belongs to me. Nobody would look at you with disdain. Nobody would look at you like you were unfair. Why? Because that TV does belong to you. See, we all get real jealous when somebody tries to take something that belongs to us. And the reason we get offended at the idea that God is jealous is because we don't like the idea that we belong to Him. But the reality is, like it or not, we do belong to the Lord. The Lord has the right to jealousy, even in a possessive way, over each and everything that He's created, and that's everything that there is. So He has a right to be possessive. But then there's another way in which we can understand jealousy. Not necessarily possessive jealousy, but protective jealousy. For instance, you might say about uh, a man and a wife that love each other that they are jealous over their marriage, meaning that they guard their marriage and they protect their marriage because they deem it as something that is precious to them and they don't want anything to harm it. And in that way, I think it's presented to us that God is a jealous God. He loves his people and he doesn't want anything to harm them. He loves Israel. He doesn't want anything to hurt them. He loves the church. He doesn't want anything to hurt it. He loves you and he loves me. And he's jealous over our love and over our relationship with him. And so it's appropriate to say that the Lord is jealous. He has the right to be jealous. What about revenge? Again, another word and idea that has really negative connotations. And this is why, because the Bible says plainly that, that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. We think of vengeance as something that we shouldn't make an endeavor. Why? Because we're not totally just and we're not totally omniscient. We may not know all the details of it. We may not know all the truths of it. Or we may not know the measure in which to mete out that vengeance. But God is a holy God. And God is an omniscient God. And He does all things well. And the judge of all the earth shall do right. And so it's not inappropriate for God to, to, to act vengeance upon someone. He'll never act, more, act out more vengeance than they deserve. And He'll never fall short of the vengeance that they have earned. And then that idea of anger. And again, another uh, idea that has very negative connotations in our society. The Bible says to be angry and sin not. And that's not saying that you have the right to have anger on the inside unjustly, but don't express anger on the outside unjustly. What it's saying is this, there's a place even for anger. I think it was Henry Ward Beecher that said that, if a, yeah, that a man can't be holy unless he can be angry. And there is a truth to that. Certain things should, should make us angry. We use this term, it's kind of a dressed up term for it, uh, that makes us feel good, but we'll say righteous indignation. Well, what is that? That's a fancy way of saying being angry over sin. I'd say it's appropriate to be angry over sin. I think God's angry over sin. I'm glad God has the ability to hate sin and love the sinner. But we spend a lot of time talking about how he loves the sinner, and we don't say a whole lot about how he hates sin. But he does hate sin. Sin angers him, and he is just in that anger. And so what we have here is really a description of the characteristics of God. God is not petty and childish. It says in verse 3, slow to anger and great in power. God doesn't fly off mad and do things that he would regret later. And sometimes that slowness in his anger, when it's directed at others, we get angry. But we're very thankful when it's directed towards us that God's slow in his anger. Man, let me tell you something. If God always gave me what I deserved and always gave it to me when I deserved it, I wouldn't be here today. I'd be snuffed out in a moment. 
But the Lord's anger is something that is slow, deliberate, decisive. And for a hundred years, God has withheld his wrathful hand against the Assyrians. And he used them, and we'll talk about this in a moment, he used them to judge Israel and Judah. But they had overstepped the purpose for which God had ordained them. And now God has had enough, and so he'll deal with them in wrath. So we see in this passage he declares his anger. And uh, I kind of like what it says in this elaborated outline. We see the Lord's patience in the first three verses. Uh, and then in the last half of the third verse, down to verse 5, we see his power described. It says this, The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Now that's poetic language, but what it's saying is this, that even nature declares how powerful God is. He rebuketh the sea, and maketh it dry, and drieth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth, and Carmel and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. Those three cities uh, were on the north and east and western side, sort of of the, of, uh, the promised land that God had given to Abraham. And, and all of them were renowned for their fertility and, and, and their ability to grow things, and how uh, lush and how beautiful they were. And it says that God has the ability to dry them up. The mountains quake at him. And the hills melt, and the earth is burned at his presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein. In other words, God has the ability, and it's evidence through nature, to judge and to make his presence known and manifest. You see that presence spoken about in verse number 6. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. In other words, when the Lord shows up, no one can stand before it. And this isn't really dealing with uh, the second coming of Christ, but let me say that one of these days when the Lord returns, the armies of the Antichrist won't be able to stand before him. His power and his fury is that mighty. It says in verse number 7, The Lord is good and a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. Just a glimpse of hope is given, and, uh, and, and kindness is given. We believe that's directed towards Judah. But with an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. What do ye imagine against the Lord? He will make an utter end. Affliction shall not rise up the second time. Now something interesting is happening in these next verses. There are three prophecies that are very startling that take place in this first chapter. As it talks about when Sennacherib, do you remember who Sennacherib was? Uh, the king of Assyria at the time that Hezekiah was on the throne of Judah. And uh, you remember we've referenced it several times how that uh, that uh, the Rabshakeh, the counselor and sort of propagandist of the Assyrian Empire, stood outside the walls of Jerusalem and mocked and made fun of and scorned the the Jews. And uh, the letter was sent, and Hezekiah laid the letter out before the Lord. And uh, most of us remember that story pretty well. Uh, there are three remarkable. Prophecies that are given concerning uh, the concerning Sennacherib. We'll get to him here in a moment. But Nahum has been basically giving a blanket statement concerning who God is, His power, His ability, what He'll stand, what He won't stand. But then in verse number eight, He turns His attention to Nineveh in particular, and very interesting language is used when it says, "But with an overrunning flood, He will make an utter end." of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. And we'll touch on that a little bit later on in the lesson, but it was actually floodwaters that did Nineveh in. 
And so he speaks to Nineveh collectively, and he says in verse 9, What do ye imagine against the Lord? Now, God gives several reasons for for his judgment upon Nineveh. And we'll see them at the end of chapter 3. But the primary one was their arrogance. Nineveh had a belief and Assyria had a belief that no one could defeat them. And such has been the downfall of pretty much every world empire. They've grown to a place where they thought they were untouchable, and pretty soon a contender arrived and dethroned them. And so the Lord says to the Assyrians, and to Nineveh in particular, what do you imagine against the Lord? What do you think you're going to do against Jehovah, the God of heaven? It says he will make an utter end. Affliction shall not rise up the second time. What does that mean, when it, that, that language, affliction shall not rise up the second time? Well, something about the history here. The Assyrians have been afflicting uh, the nation of Israel, and God gave mercy and gave repentance to them, and allowed them to repent under the preaching of Jonah. And what happened? They rose up and began to afflict the nation of Israel. They stormed in and took captive the entire uh, northern tri- tribe uh, or northern nation of Israel of the ten tribes, and even even went to Jerusalem and tried to sack Jerusalem. And God says that's not going to happen a second time. I'm going to judge you this time, and I'm going to make an utter end of you. He says in verse 10, For while they be folded together as thorns, and while they are drunken as drunkards, they shall be devoured as stubble fully dry. He gives two word pictures there. One is that of a bramble bush or a thorn bush uh, bush that, that is dangerous, that can harm you, that can hurt you, but is so susceptible to fire. And then the second that he gives is uh, drunkenness, and he'll touch on that again later on in the book of Nahum. But basically, when the time came that they sieged, that the Medes and the Babylonians sieged Nineveh, uh, the men that should have been the sort of the action men, the men that should have been the commanders and the generals, and should have been leading the people, instead they stumbled like drunks out of fear and out of terror. He says in, chapter, in verse number 11, There is one come out of thee that imagineth evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Most people agree that he's talking about Rabshakeh, the propagandist that stood outside the walls of Jerusalem. Some people believe, and this is entirely possible, that when it says a wicked counselor, it's denoting the fact that Rabshakeh was not an Assyrian by birth, but rather a counselor that had been brought in. And a lot of people believe that Rabshakeh was actually an apostate Jew. When he spoke to the Jews, he spoke to them in Hebrew. Now that tells you something. And he seemed to have a disdain for the God of Israel that was above most other people. He says, Thus saith the Lord, though they be quiet, and likewise many. After generations of warfare, uh, they came as calm and experienced warriors to the wall. They weren't coming in a frenzy, but coming in a calm resolution and uh, and confidence that they could defeat them, they came quiet, and likewise many. Yet thus shall they be cut down. When he shall pass through, though I have afflicted thee, I will afflict thee no more. Now what does that mean? Who's the he? The he is the angel of the Lord that came through and slew 185,000 Assyrians in one night. Picture him standing outside the wall, quiet and reserved, uh, the ranks unbroken. I mean, just a, a, a sea of of Assyrians. There was enough for 185,000 to be killed, and the Assyrians, there's still to be some left over to go home. So you're talking about two, three hundred thousand, maybe five hundred thousand. Who knows how many, but a, a sea of people standing outside the walls of Jerusalem. 
And then God passes through that night. The angel of the Lord comes through and, and uh, destroys all of them. And he gives this message to Judah. Though I have afflicted thee, I will afflict thee no more. God had ordained that the Assyrians were to destroy the northern nation of Israel. But they went beyond that and destroyed many of the suburbs of Judah and tried to take Jerusalem itself. And the Lord says it's enough. I'll not allow this to happen anymore. They won't afflict you any longer. For now will I break his yoke from off thee, and will burst thy bonds in sunder. You know what a yoke is. You've seen before when they yoke oxen together or, or mules or things like that. And uh, in other words, Judah was not going to be tributary any longer to the Assyrians. And the Lord hath given a commandment concerning thee. Now these are the three prophecies concerning Sennacherib the king that at the time that Hezekiah was on the throne. A commandment concerning thee. Number one, that no more of thy name be sown. At that time, Sennacherib's uh, son, Sargon, would have been alive, and probably his grandson, Ashurbanipal. Ashurbanipal is the one that's mentioned in the introductory notes. He's the last great Assyrian king that lived. After he died, two more kings, petty kings, arose, but no one of the splendor and, and power of Ashurbanipal. They were probably alive. If this happened at the time that uh, Sennacherib uh, sacked Jerusalem or tried to, then that would have been 17 years before his death, and those men would have been alive. And the first thing God says is, your dynasty is going to end. No more of thy name will be sown. No more children. The second thing is this. He says, out of the house of thy gods will I cut off the graven image. The gods of the Assyrians would die. God would do away. They were renowned for their idolatry. In fact, one of their greatest sins was that of idolatry. And uh, they, uh, the Lord says, I'm going to cut off those gods. No one's going to worship Assyrian gods any longer. And then the third thing is this. He says, I will make thy grave, for thou art vile. He says, I'm going to kill Sennacherib. Why? Because he's vile. Those three prophecies came true exactly as the Lord said that they would. Verse 15, you have sort of the, the scene shifts. And it says this, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. O Judah, keep thy solemn feasts, perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. We're seeing two things here in chapter number 1 and verse 15. These same, that same language, the, the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, is used two other times in the Word of God. Once by Isaiah, and it's used once in the book of Romans by Paul. And the picture that Nahum is painting is twofold. One, he's painting what it's going to look like when the couriers and the messengers arrive at the cities to give news of the fall of Nineveh. And you can imagine what it would have been like at that Time And in that day when a watchman would sit on the wall and watch the horizon to see any messengers, footmen, horsemen, couriers that would be coming. And when they would see them, they would be hoping that good news was coming on the horizon. And so it's describing the joy that would have been in their hearts when they saw these couriers and the couriers arrived and said, Nineveh has fallen, Nineveh has fallen, and the joy they would have had. But evidently verse 15 reaches beyond that because it gives a promise that's still not been fulfilled. O Judah, keep thy solemn feasts, perform thy vows. Now that in and of itself is twofold. 
Because you've got to remember at this time when this, these prophecies were taking place in chapter number one, Jerusalem was under siege. And, uh, so they weren't able even to get to the temple to offer their vows or to, uh, keep their solemn feasts. But now they'll be able to because God has overthrown, uh, the Assyrians at the walls of Jerusalem. But then too, it looks further to the millennial reign where it says, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. Nahum doesn't say a lot about the day of the Lord. In fact, he doesn't really say anything about the day of the Lord, as it were. But sometimes he'll look beyond and see just glimpses of the millennial reign. And that's what you have in verse 15, just a glimpse of the millennial reign. So the first thing that we see in chapter number 1 is this truth, that God is jealous and Nineveh will fall. But in chapter number 2, we see a change in the message. And we now see that God is judge and how Nineveh is going to fall. And so, remember what what Nahum called this book. Remember in verse number one, the burden of Nineveh? The book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite? So Nahum is seeing all these things, and they're burdensome things that he's seeing. And in chapter number two, he begins to describe some of the things that he begins to see. Verse number one, he says, He that dasheth in pieces is come up before thy face. Keep the munition, watch the way, make thy loins strong, fortify thy power mightily. When it says he, it's talking about the uh, combined army of the Medes and the Babylonians. Uh, they signed an agreement one with another, and you'll remember that after the Assyrians, the Babylonians rose to prominence, and after the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians rose to prominence. Well, those empires were in existence even in that day, they just weren't uh, top dogs, so to speak. They weren't world empires. And so the Medes and the Babylonians made an accord and an agreement, and they combined destroyed the city of Nineveh and overthrew the Assyrians. And so the he in chapter number 2 and verse 1 is describing the, the Medes and the Babylonians. And you have this language. Now, again, you've got to see what Nahum is seeing. And he sees a picture of armies that are storming upon a wall. And then all of a sudden he hears the cries from the Assyrian generals. And what do they say? They say, keep the munition, watch the way, make thy loins strong, fortify thy power mightily. What he's hearing is the commands from the generals to tell the people to keep strong and to, to stay tough in the face of this army. Verse number two gives a reason why the Medes and the Babylonians are there. For the Lord hath turned away the excellency of Jacob as the excellency of Israel. In other words, God had fully judged Judah the way he had judged Israel. For the emptiers, that's speaking of the Assyrians, have emptied them out and marred their vine branches. In other words, this is God saying, this is why this army is at the walls of Nineveh. is because the judgment of, of Judah and Israel is complete, but the Assyrians went further and they tried to take more than what God had ordained them to take. And so this army is here to crush them and overthrow them. He sees the men standing there and marching on the wall. And he says, the shield of his mighty men is made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. The chariots shall be with flaming torches in the day of his preparation. And the fir trees shall be terribly shaken. 
The chariots shall rage in the streets. They shall jostle one against another in the broad ways. In other words, there would be such a magnitude of chariots that they would literally be bumping into each other in the main thoroughfares of Nineveh, which again, you can imagine the magnitude. If the walls were such that three cars could drive along the top of them, then you can imagine how the broad streets must have been. I mean, these are streets that very likely could have been the, the width of this fellowship hall here. And Nahum says, I see so many chariots that they're bumping into one another. He says that they all seem like torches. They shall run like light loops. It turns the picture to the king of the Nineveh, the king of the Assyrians at the time, and says, he shall recount his worthies. In other words, you can see the king there, barricaded in his palace, listening to the raging battle outside, and he sits back and he thinks about all the splendor that Nineveh once was, all of the countries they destroyed, all of the treasures they laid up. They shall stumble in their walk, speaking of the soldiers. They shall make haste to the wall thereof, and the defense thereof shall be prepared. They're doing their best to try to keep this approaching army at bay. Verse number 6 is interesting. The gates of the rivers shall be opened, and the palace shall be dissolved. I told you there was actually floodwaters that did Nineveh in, and it was. Kasser, the river that ran underneath it, much like uh, the Euphrates did for the Babylonian, uh, for Babylon, the ancient city of Babylon, Kasser supplied water uh, to the Ninevites, and so it was a city that was sort of siege-proof. And it was common in that day, if you had a waterway going under the walls of your city, because you didn't want anyone uh, coming underneath those walls and being able to get into your city and attack you, they'd build large gates, large iron uh, gates on either side of that river that ran through it. In fact, it's ironic that uh, about 150 years later, when the Medes defeated the Babylonians and overthrew the city of Babylon, they were in much the same situation. And in that night of their drunken revelry, the same night that the hand wrote on the wall, uh, in their drunkenness they had left the gates that were on either side of the Euphrates River open. And actually what the Medes did is they, uh, they rerouted that river and went underneath the wall and defeated the Babylonians that night. Well, sort of in that same way, and you kind of know whose idea that must have been, it must have been the Medes because here they are doing it to Nineveh, what they do actually is they dam up the Khazar River. And they wait until it builds to a, to a great volume, and then they release that dam. And when they do, the water floods under the walls, destroys that portion of the walls, and tears down the gates on either side. And in that way, they were able to get under the walls and destroy Nineveh. Verse 7 has the, the name Huzab, or Huzab, I guess if you want to call it that. Huzab shall be led away captive. She shall be brought up, and her maids shall lead her, as with the voice of doves tabering upon her breasts. Most people believe that Huzab was the queen at that time. It's not necessarily something that is substantiated and concrete, but that seems to be the most reasonable explanation. Verse 8 says, But Nineveh is of old like a pool of water, yet shall they flee away. In other words, like you're letting the plug loose on, on a bucket of water or, or breaking the dam on a river like a standing pool. All these people were in the city of Nineveh. But when this happens, they flee away like you let the water loose and they poured forth in a mighty exodus from the city. Stand, stand, shall they cry, but none shall look back. 
You can see the soldiers saying, hold your place, hold the line, stay where you're at. But no one even turns around to look. Take ye the spoil of silver, take the spoil of gold, for there is none end of the store and glory out of all the pleasant furniture. You can hear the soldiers, the generals of the Medes and Babylonians saying, take everything that you can find, loot and plunder the city. And then we see a picture of the aftermath. She is empty and void and waste. No wonder they couldn't find the ruins of Nineveh. They plundered it so thoroughly that the Bible describes it as empty and void and waste. And the heart melteth and the knees smite together and much pain is in all loins and the faces of them all gather blackness. Verse number 11, you have a little bit of sarcasm and wordplay. Where is the dwelling of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion, even the old lion, walked, and the lions whelp, and none made them afraid. The lion did tear in pieces enough for his whelps, and strangled for his lionesses, and filled his holes with prey, and his dens with raven. Lions featured prominently in the artwork of ancient Assyrian cities, and Nineveh in particular. And if you go to the museum, uh, any room that features Assyrian things, you'll see a lot of lions on display in, in various, uh, you know, carvings and things like that. And Assyria very much fancied themselves as the lion of the Middle East, the, the, the king of the jungle, as it were. And so the word picture that's given here is this. A lion would have a den where it would dwell, and uh, there it would it would go out and capture something and drag it back and give enough meat for uh, the cubs, the whelps, and for the lionesses. The Lord says, where's the lion now? Where's the den now? And Assyria had done this. They'd go out, they'd destroy countries, they'd plunder them, they'd take their gods, their treasures, their captives, their slaves, they'd bring them all back uh, to, to their capital cities, Nineveh in particular. And now the Lord says, the old line is laid up in store for all these years, but where's the lion now? And where's that which he has laid up? It's in light of the words in verse 10 that that's given where it says she's empty and void and waste. In verse 13, and the Lord doesn't say this often, but there's a few times in Scripture that, that he says this, Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will burn her chariots in the smoke, and the sword shall devour thy young lions, and I will cut off thy prey from the earth, and the voice of thy messengers shall no more be heard. Let me tell you something, and this is true, and I've not made a lot of practical applications, but I'll make this one tonight. There are times when even God's people, the Lord sets himself against them to stop them from delving off into sin anymore. That's a, that's a terrifying thing for the Lord to say, I'm against thee. I've made up my mind I'm going to withstand thee. I'm going to be an enemy to you because you're an enemy to yourself. And he says to the Assyrians, I'm against thee. I've devoured your young lions. And he says, the messenger of Nineveh will be heard no more. They'll be utterly destroyed. Chapter number 3, we have a third vein of thought. And it's this, that God is just, and why Nineveh will fall. You know, God doesn't have to justify his actions, but most of the time he does. He begins to talk about some of the things that Nineveh had done and the reasons that he is doing what he's doing. begins this way, Woe to the bloody city! It is all full of lies and robbery. The prey departeth not. 
What does that mean, the prey departeth not? In other words, when Nineveh captured somebody, they didn't leave anyone alive. The prey departs not from Nineveh. And, and history bears that to be true. I, I mean, they had a policy when they would come into a society. They they didn't just enslave a, a people. They they destroyed a people. They carried away captive all the men. And, and they then sent the women out to the far reaches of their kingdom and uh, intermarried them with Assyrians and, and brought Assyrians to that city and intermarried with those people. We know that's where the Samaritans came from. The Jews considered the Samaritans to be a half-breed because they were sort of uh, left over from that time when Sennacherib overthrew uh, the northern ten tribes. And so they've treated people this way. It says, The noise of a whip and the noise of the rattling of the wheels and of the prancing horses and of the jumping chariots. The horseman lifteth up both the bright sword and the glittering spear, and there is a multitude of slain and a great number of carcasses, and there is none end of their corpses. They stumble upon their corpses. God is describing the scene that Nineveh will be. And he's saying there's bodies upon bodies upon bodies. You can hear the noise of the whip. You can see the glistening of the sword and the spear of the Medes and the Babylonians, and there's just piles of carcasses. Why? Because of the multitude of the whoredoms of the well-favored harlot, the mistress of witchcrafts, that selleth nations through her whoredoms and families through her witchcrafts. Because of their idolatry, because of their spiritual adultery, because of their, uh, their viciousness and their mercilessness, God says, I'm going to destroy you. Verse 5, he echoes this again. Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts. And I will discover thy skirts upon thy face. And I will show the nations thy nakedness and the kingdoms thy shame. In other words, about the worst thing you could do to a prostitute would be to publicly expose and shame them. And the Lord says, I'm going to do that to Nineveh. They, they've played the harlot. And they have advanced their kingdom through harlotry and idolatry. And he says, I'm going to expose them for what they are. And I will cast abominable filth upon thee, and make thee vile, and will set thee as a gazing stock. What's a gazing stock? Well, most of us, we've seen it. If we've, if we, even if we don't know we saw it, we've seen it in movies and things like that, when someone for a punishment would be taken and put in the stocks. And uh, they were there, and that was a humiliation and a derision. And they were there as an example of what happens when you break the law. So that men and women and children would walk by and look at them, and they would have a vivid reminder of what it means to break the law. In the same way, the Lord says that I'm going to make Nineveh an example. And when people think of the ancient city of Nineveh, they're going to know what it means to break God's law. Verse 7 says, And it shall come to pass that all they that look upon thee shall flee from thee, and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will bemoan her? When shall I seek comforters for thee? In other words, Nineveh would find no allies and no friends. The Assyrians would have no one to help them. Isn't that, isn't that just the way that it is? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. They hadn't shown mercy, so they didn't obtain mercy. Verse 8 is, is interesting. It says, Art thou better than populous? No. Now, that's not a Bond villain. <laughs> populous No is speaking of the ancient Egyptian city of Thebes. And the ancient name of it was No Amon, which was named after one of their gods. And the Assyrians actually were the ones that overthrew the Egyptian city of Thebes. 
But Jesus was situated on the Nile in the same way that Nineveh was situated on the Tigris. And they had mountains and deserts all around them, and they had the, the they were the capital of Upper Egypt, and they were situated there on the Nile, and they looked to the Nile to be their defense the same way that the Assyrians looked to the Tigris to be a barrier between them and their enemies. And the Lord says, Are you better than that ancient city that was situated amongst the rivers, that had the waters round about it, whose rampart was the sea, and her wall was from the sea? Ethiopia and Egypt were her strength, and it was infinite. Punt and Lubum were thy helpers. In other words, they had all of the military resources that a city could ask for, yet the Assyrians overthrew them. Maybe the Assyrians should have learned from that example, because it says in verse 10, Yet was she carried away. She went into captivity. Her young children also were dashed in pieces at the top of all the streets. Well, it sounds like the Assyrians. That's what they did, and now it would be done to them. And they cast lots for her honorable men, and all her great men were bound in chains. They would at that time, they, they, there even in Thebes, the Assyrians took and put in chains the great and honorable men, and the soldiers sat around and cast lots and bet and gambled and, 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 and proposed offers uh, and prices for these honorable men to take them away as slaves, and all the great men were bound in chains. And so the Lord says to Nineveh, Thou also shalt be drunken, thou shalt be hid, thou also shalt seek strength because of the enemy. In other words, the way that they were uh, in disarray and acting like drunken men, the way that they went and hid for their lives, and the way that they sought alliances from the Assyrians, the Lord's going to do that now to them. All thy strongholds shall be like fig trees with the first ripe figs. And we know what figs are. You, you all have fig newtons in your cabinets. You know, we know the fruit, figs. And the explanation is given at the end of the verse. If they be shaken, they shall even fall into the mouth of the eater. Even a child could go up and shake a fig tree and shake ripe figs out of it. And the Lord's saying it's going to be so easy for people to come and pluck up your cities and your fortresses. Behold, by people in the midst of thee are women. Now, there's one of two ways you can take that. And I'll tell you what commentators say and what I believe. Uh, commentators would say that what's being said is that the great men are going to behave uh, as women. They're going to be fearful and they're going to be, uh, you know, timid and everything and be led away captive. I sort of believe that what it's saying is that when the Medes and Babylonians came in, they killed all the men and left all the women. Uh, that's my belief, but I guess folks could argue about that if they wanted to. It says, The gates of thy land shall be set wide open unto thine enemies. The fire shall devour thy bars. In other words, your enemies will be able to walk right in on you. Draw thee waters for the siege. This is sort of, I like this, the way this ends here. Uh, what, the, what Nathan is doing is giving advice to the Ninevites. He's saying, draw water for the siege. You're going to be under siege, so you need to go ahead and draw water for it. It says, fortify thy strongholds, because there the enemy is going to attack you. And go into clay and tread the mortar. Make strong the brick kiln. He's saying, get the brick kiln ready. Get the mortar ready, because they're going to tear down your walls. There shall the fire devour thee. The sword shall cut thee off. It shall eat thee up like the canker worm. Make thyself many as the canker worm. Make thyself many as the locust. Now, this is interesting to me. Because you remember in the book of Joel, the Assyrians are likened to locusts. When they're going to come and, and overrun Israel, 
They're likened to an army of locusts. That's sort of the beginning of the locusts. And in Nahum we have the end of the locusts. He says, Thou hast multiplied thy merchants above the stars of heaven. The canker worm spoileth and flieth away. Situated on major trade routes, Nineveh had prospered like no other city. But he says, now you've made your merchants as the stars of heaven, but now the canker worm is going to spoil and fly away. Verse 17, thy crowned are as locusts, and thy captains as the great grasshoppers, which camp in the hedges in the cold day. But when the sun ariseth, they flee away, and their place is not known where they are. So the first time you see him in the book of Joel, they're like an advancing army of locusts. But now he describes them as locusts, which it was common in that time. It was a habit. Well, it's still a habit today. Locusts ain't changed. Amen. Uh, it's common for locusts to, during the cold part of the day, to try to preserve their heat, to go into the hedges and to, to dwell there and sleep there in the cold part to try to preserve their heat. But when the hot sun comes out, it gets too hot for them, and they, they flee away. And so the Lord says to the Ninevites, you've been like those locusts. You've grown weak in your complacency. You, you sat back and, and thought that you were okay. Your great men and your generals have thought that you had the run of everything. And so you've fallen asleep on the watch, but now the sun is shining and you're going to flee away. Thy shepherd slumber, O king of Assyria. That word shepherd, of course we know what a shepherd is, but sometimes it's used poetically of uh, generals and princes and, and counselors. It says, Thy nobles shall dwell in the dust. Thy people is scattered upon the mountains, and no man gathereth them. Verse number 19 is addressed to the king of Assyria, just as verse 18 is. And it says this, There is no healing of thy bruise. Thy wound is grievous. It's interesting. The Lord had just said that. And uh, I believe it's the book of Micah. I may be wrong of that, but uh, I believe in the book of Micah or Hosea. My mind fails me, but had just said that to Samaria. Uh, the book of Micah is where it is. Just said that. Said that thy wound is incurable. And it says now to uh, the Assyrians, there is no healing of thy bruise. Thy wound is grievous. All that hear the brute of thee. The destruction of thee, all that hear the destruction of thee, shall clap the hands over thee. In other words, the Lord says when, when the world hears that Nineveh has fallen, they'll clap their hands and they'll rejoice. For upon whom hath not thy wickedness passed continually? Have you noticed something about the book of Nahum? It ends much like the book of Jonah does. It ends with a question. The book of Jonah ends with the Lord saying, Shall I not... Show mercy. Shall I not show mercy? Uh, Jonah, should I not be merciful to these? There's, there's scores, there's multitudes of them. Shouldn't I show mercy to them? He says in verse 11 of Jonah chapter 4, And should I not spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than 6,000 persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle? The end of Nineveh ends with a question, Upon whom hath not thy wickedness passed continually? If I could give one closing commentary about the book of Nahum, it would be this. That God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. Be sure thy sin will find thee out. The Lord's wrath is slow. 
But we can be assured of this, that the Lord will repay every wicked deed upon every wicked person. Gets a little frustrating sometimes, doesn't it? To see all the wickedness in this world. But let me remind you that just as there was a day coming for Nineveh, there's a day coming for the armies of this world too. We as Christians, we've cast our lot in with Jesus Christ. We know what our end is. But in the midst of all the discouraging news reports, in the midst of all of the shocking things that we hear day by day, let us take comfort in this truth that the Lord's returning, and He's returning to show wrath upon the wicked. Now, the wonderful thing would be for them to hear and turn from their wicked ways, as the book of Ezekiel says. That's what we want. But let us not forget either that the Lord is vengeful, and His wrath is furious, and the Lord is returning.